As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I had the great pleasure of chatting with George Gascone. George is a candidate for district attorney in the city of Los Angeles. George oversaw 9,000 officers as the assistant chief of the LAPD. And in 2011, after district attorney Kamala Harris vacated her seat, he was tapped by Gavin Newsom to be the district attorney of San Francisco. Since his appointment, George has earned a national reputation as a visionary in criminal justice reform. He's been named among the top 100 lawyers in California by the Daily Journal, The Anti-Defamation League honored him with its prestigious Civil Rights Award. And today he joined us to talk about criminal justice reform, investing in education, and his vision for the future of Los Angeles. So please enjoy my conversation with George Gascon. George, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? It's going great, all things considered. How about yourself? How, How are you? How are you holding up? You know what? We're holding up well. Um, this is a final stretch, so it's almost nonstop. You know, uh, sleeping is becoming almost optional, but uh, it's all good. You know, we got a lot of momentum, a lot of support. We've now built up somewhere around 1,600, 1,700 volunteers in our campaign. We have reached out uh, 1 million LA County voters, either via text or or phone call directly, you know, a one-on-one basis from a lot of volunteers. So feel very fortunate. The passion and the support for, for this movement uh, has grown in the last few months. But it's a real race. You know, it's very tough. You know, we have, uh, unfortunately, prison guard unions and police unions have put a lot of money against this campaign, about almost $7 million. And, uh, and we recognize that, you know, we are questioning the status quo where we're talking about, you know, taking the criminal justice system in a way that that should have been done a long time ago. You know, we're talking about really prioritizing results for victims and community and taxpayers instead of just simply punishing people. And, and unfortunately, the system has been fueled by punishment for the last three decades. And a lot of 
a lot of interest has been developed into that. And, you know, we're seeing money coming from very interesting places. You know, people that have been major supporters of the Trump administration putting hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's just it's, it's a very interesting experience because it clearly shows two very different options as to how do we want it move forward in LA County and probably the rest of the country because LA County being so large, you know, the impact that it will have on criminal justice for the years to come is, is a very substantial uh, effect that this campaign will have. Well, assuming that the listeners aren't experts on, you know, district's attorneys' offices and, you know, criminal justice reform movement, you, you, you mentioned the movement. Do you mind diving in a little bit further on what the sort of national movement is and stands for and sort of the things that, you know, you find to be the most pragmatic components, the cross-aisle ideas? Yeah, you know, I mean, so, you know, this is really about beginning to sort of dismantle systemic racism from the criminal justice system. It's really about bringing communities together to redefine how safety uh, should be created. It's really about, you know, using science and using data to make sure that we are, for instance, that we're not incarcerating children as adults, because we know that that not only it doesn't work, what you do is you create uh, a life of criminality that, you know, for a young person, because then they can get out of it. You know, once they get criminalized, it's very hard to get out of that. Basically, what you're doing is by giving them felony consequences, you are taking away their ability to get employment, to get housing. So, you know, a major component of uh, homelessness, certainly in California, has been, you know, three decades of disproportionately locking up so many people. L.A. County has led the way there. We, like L.A. County criminalizes more people than any other counties or countries in the world. Oh, you know, unquestionably. I mean, and, and you know, it's, a, it's an in, interesting point because, you know, some people push back and say, well, you know, L.A. County is the largest county, so therefore it follows that you should be the most of whatever. But what often people don't realize is we're talking about proportionally. Proportionally, this county criminalizes people at a higher rate than 70% of all the other counties in, in the state, which is a lot to say because you're you're in a place, uh, you're comparing yourself to very, very conservative counties like, you know, Riverside, San Bernardino, Orange County. Four times the rate to San Francisco. And yet at the same time, we have seen, um, you know, violent crime go up by 27% under the current administration in L.A. County, where we saw violent crime proportionally decrease in San Francisco with a quarter of the rate of incarceration. You know, I tell people that if incarceration was the currency of safety, L.A. County would be the safest county in the country, but it is not, right? So it's, it's that, that, you know, we're, we're a jail-happy county, we're a death penalty-happy county, and that's not a good thing. You know, we incarcerate more people, we put more people on death road, and we're very focused on punishment uh, as opposed to getting results. And, you know, the taxpayers are paying for that with the resources that could be applied to education and housing and other things. And certainly we're breaking up the social fabric of so many parts of our community in that process. Totally. We're like paying the equivalent of what it would take to send people to college or great mental counseling and, and keeping them locked up. And we certainly have lost the narrative or the thread of, you know, people paying their debt to society or trying to, 
you know, better themselves in order to become valuable members of society and have very much gotten stuck in the punishment component and not the rehabilitation component, which is just, you know, an unfortunate signal to all of us, right? Like how we are with anyone is how we are with everyone, how we treat those that have hurt us and those that have it the worst in our society, you know, like definitely has a, 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 you know, it speaks volumes about what our priorities are. And, and I'm just, you know, for you, you know, you being a former assistant chief of police here in LA, former chief of police in Santa Fe, correct? San, San Francisco. Oh, you were chief of police in San Francisco. I'm sorry. I thought, and, and were you a cop in Santa Fe or were no, you no, a... No, I was a chief of police in Mesa, Arizona, and then chief it. of police in San Francisco, yeah. I got Arizona and New Mexico mixed up yeah. because <laughs> I, that's, 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 such a, that's such a rookie move. But, uh, but you know, the, 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 reason, the reason I mention it is because... Don't tell that to people in Arizona or New Mexico. They, they come off to yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just really rude. Um, you know, similar scenery. I don't know. Hey, it's like... It's, it's like calling a Giants fan a Dodger fan, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, listen, you know what? It just shows that you don't play a lot of baseball. <laughs> so so ultimately, yeah, the reason I brought it up in the first place, George, is just because, like, you know, you, you have experience on the police side of the aisle. You were a cop here in, in L.A. You were, you know, chief of police. And like you said, police unions are one of the groups that are funding your opposition. So I'm curious, like, you know, just from your perspective, how, how does this help police? Well, I mean, you know, unfortunately, it, it doesn't really help police, right? I mean, what we see is we see uh, prison guard unions and police unions really very focused on 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 a very limited portion of their work and and very motivated by the by the ability to you know to continue to maintain the political influence that they have at a major cost to all of us as taxpayers and as members of our community right we we don't benefit from that political influence and those you know that money that is being used in a very very selfish very money power motivated way and it's not, you know, really at the end of the day, it doesn't even help the, the men and women and, and police forces because, you know, the, the more that you create a division between the, the officers in the street and many of the communities that they serve, the more insecurity that we have and also the, the more unsafe that the work becomes for the officer. It's a very narrow and I would say a, a very, um, you know, just a very unwise way of trying to exercise political power. But, you know, power, it, it blinds people. And, and, and I think that to a great extent, a lot of police labor organizations and prison guards have become very accustomed in the last 30 years or so to bully their way through the system and, and really intimidate people. And they're having a hard time grasping that change is coming. And regardless of what they do, they can go down kicking and dragging, but, you know, reform will happen with or without them. I just, I, I wanted you to, to get a little bit more granular though and help us understand, like, as a district attorney, what are some of the best practices that ultimately end up benefiting everybody's public safety? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before I do that, I, I just kind of wanted. For my, you know, from my end, I want to distinguish because I think there's a uniqueness to police associations that is different than other unions. I, I, I totally get that you may see sometimes some, some other unions perhaps, you know, going uh, in a way that you would prefer not to. But in the case of policing, 
and, and, and prison guards, I, I view it very differently because these are the only organizations, especially when we talk about policing, is the only organizations in our democratic system where we relinquish the authority to take our freedom away under certain circumstances to sometimes actually make life and death, sure. death uh, situ- uh, you know, decisions. So I, I view it, quite frankly, in a, in a very very different plane just simply because the authority that we grant police officers in our system is very different than what we do for you know for teachers or carpenters or nurses so you know i generally view those unions that yeah they're doing what unions do they're protecting their labor force and and that may or may not have always a good consequence but but in the in the case of police unions it's just so outside the process right because they are defending in criminal courts, sometimes the behavior of criminal behavior by police officers, right? They're paying for the lawyers or doing sometimes police officers that take a life away from someone unnecessarily or incarcerated someone. So it's just so disproportionate the, that's, the that's authority totally that they have. Uh, you know, I, I just heard today actually a member of the, uh, you know, the Correctional Officers Union. I thought it was very interesting, a former member. And he said, you know, we are trading in human tragedy and in human suffering. And I thought it was so interesting that someone that came from the walk admitted that would that they had lost their their sort of their compass, if you will, and move away from public service. So it's it's just it's just it's very different. But you know, getting down to that you know the the granular discussion about what is it about the system and, and what do we need to do in order to move us away, I think it's really important to recognize that that disconnect that has been between white America and and certainly African Americans and, and probably Latinos to a lesser extent. Uh, when it came to policing, is that well, you're absolutely right that for most white Americans, you know, police officers has always been sort of the the knight and the you know shining armor. Uh, you know, the African American community experience has been a very different one, and and I think we're finally the rest of the community is understanding that you know the origins of policing in this country, by and large, are deeply embedded in the in the institution of slavery. And I know that it's hard to swallow, but you have to kind of go back to the history of slavery in this country and how the, the, the early iterations of, you know, public safety groups or, you know, vigilantes in one case were really there to support slavery, were there to catch runaway slaves, bring them back, you know, sometimes punish them. And then after the Civil War, when slavery was outlawed, we sort of transitioned into the Jim Crow era. You know, there was a short period of time where after the Civil War, African-Americans were beginning to, to gain a foothold in the political arena. They were getting elected to uh, you know, public office. And then immediately you saw a big shutdown and you saw the criminalization of a lot of new behavior or the criminalization of new criminalization of behavior that then policing and prosecutors started to use to basically put those that were formerly slaves now into enslaved-like conditions, even though slavery was unlawful. And you saw often people being, you know, prosecuted and incarcerated, losing the right to vote. So, you know, the, the ability to elect public officials has started to dissipate. And that moved all the way through the, you know, through the, from the 19th into the 20th century. And, you know, you move forward into the war on drugs in the late 1980s, well, the 1980s and 90s and taking us into today. So I think 
what has occurred, though, while this was, we sort of had parallel universe, right? The experience for African Americans was one. The experience for white Americans when they came to the criminal justice system was a different one. And I think what occurred, especially after George Floyd, was a reckoning, an awakening of, of white America that began to see what, you know, frankly, black America has been seeing one generation after the other. And I think that that's created a healthy conversation, with, which is good for everyone, including the police. Because I think, you know, a lot of the solutions really need to come. Police needs to be a partner in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily the police labor organization, but police. And I think that what we're saying is, look, we need to reimagine how the system works so that it works for everybody. So we need to get rid of the, the, the vestiges and the systemic racism that has helped incarcerate and keep people in slave-like conditions for so long. And we need to take the financial incentives that the current system has by building more prisons, more jails, more prosecutors, more cops. I mean, they're huge financial rewards here. And I and I find that interesting when, you know, people get very offended sometimes with the term defund the police, which it means a lot of things to different people. You know, to me, it really means right-sizing the police. But, you know, I, I tell people often, I say, you know, you were not offended when we defunded public education mm-hmm. or public health or social services or housing to increase the size of policing. Why is it so offensive to have a conversation around defunding some levels of policing now and really kind of actually, I would call just sort of dialing back to put us back to put more money into into education, public health, housing, mm-hmm. and those things that we sort of lost our way about three or four decades ago. Because what occurred in this country is we defunded so many of the services. Look, we built 22 prisons in 30 years in California, one public university. That, to me, was a huge defunding effort uh, to, on public education at the expense of creating a system that actually doesn't doesn't really do anything for us other than continue to perpetuate, you know, insecurity. And, and to the point that you have some communities actually that began to project economically, how many jails am I going to have to build? How many prisons based on the growth of population, especially the black and the brown growth of population, instead of projecting and saying, how many public schools do I need to build? Mm-hmm. You know, 10, 15 years down the line, which is very, very tragic byproduct of what we've done in the last few decades. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I remember learning that some of the private prisons being developed in the Midwest part of the bond financing had mm-hmm. guaranteed rates of occupancy yeah. uh, by the state. So we're yeah. literally like funding future prisons by guaranteeing a percentage of criminalization. Yep. And perhaps it's just so runaway, but I just don't think that people turn to anything that has the types of consequences that crime does either out of some sort of like mental health issue or necessity, you know? So when you talk about, you know, these savage inequalities of education, health, human services, you know, housing and the rates of criminality from people that, you know, have those things stable versus those that don't, I guess just my exposure in, in, you know, with the anti-recidivism coalition and just meeting young people charged with serious crimes is you find pretty quickly from personal exposure that it's situational. It's not like there's good people and bad people. There's good situations and bad situations for the most part. Yeah. I mean, look, if you you took a drug use, you know, and I always use drugs because I think drug, it just is something that most people can understand. You know, the use of drugs in this country is, uh, is equal across social and economic and racial lines. But when you look at our jails and our prisons, who are the people that they get incarcerated for drug possession? And I'm talking about for personal use. I'm not talking about, you know, sales or any of this stuff. Are black and brown people. So you have, it just, it becomes very obvious when you look through, just through that track alone, just the the racism in the system where you have a behavior that, that is equally prevalent across the social, economic, and racial lines, but only a small segment of our population tends to be the one that gets penalized for it. Your critics in San Francisco, you know, would say that some of the lighter punishments or ticketed offenses versus criminal offenses have led to like an increased criminality 
at a higher level. Do you mind talking to that a little bit? And- no, of course. Yeah, so I mean, first of all, look, I mean, let, let's begin by talking about violent crime, and I'm going to get down to, to drug use. Okay. San Francisco had a re- net reduction proportionate rate, uh, you know, the, the rate of violent crime in San Francisco decreased during the time that I was district attorney, and we incarcerated at a quarter of the rate of L.A. County. The rate of violent crime in L.A. County went up. 27% during the time that the current DA has been in office, which is almost the same. I was there a year before she did. Homelessness in San Francisco during the time that I was a district attorney went up by 13%. Homelessness mm-hmm. in LA during the time that Jackie Lacey was the, has been the DA went up by 50%. Mm-hmm. So when you start looking at the byproducts of allegedly the behavior of one district attorney or the enforcement and the prosecutorial stance of one against the other, you see very quickly that actually what has been going on in L.A. hasn't worked. Now, I understand that there are, you know, there are political implications to all of this. And, you know, sometimes when you, you do your work in a way that makes people uncomfortable, like in my case, when we started very massive public corruption investigations with the FBI, you know, it made some people uncomfortable. It made the, you know, the mayor of San Francisco very uncomfortable and she became a, a strong enemy. And, you know, to this day, she continues to bring that out. But if you ask her, you know, okay, so would you support incarcerating those that are mentally ill? Uh, she will readily tell you no. So then the answer is, um, or those that have a substance abuse problem, and she will readily tell you that she wouldn't. So you cannot have your cake and eat it in this in this area. You can't blame me for you know what is a an addiction epidemic in this country, which San Francisco clearly, much like L.A., has suffered from it. Mm-hmm. And then, at the same time, understand that you cannot incarcerate your way out of that. And, and you know, I find that interesting because you even hear the rhetoric of police, oh, we make arrests and the DA doesn't do anything, except that when you look down at the reality, they're not making the arrest, right? And I'm not suggesting they should arrest people that are addicted, but, you know, like in San Francisco, Property crime was vastly driven by car break-ins for a period of about four years until we had a new chief of police. And the chief of police that was there at the time, who who became a political enemy, was forced out in disgrace. But there were 81,000 car break-ins in nearly four years, and there were 13 arrests, one three. And we prosecuted all but one of those or two. How is the DA at fault for an epidemic in car break-ins when there are no arrests made? This is the kind of stuff that, you know, flies on the face of, you know, the rhetoric, the political rhetoric. Or, you know, like blaming me for homelessness in San Francisco, which I think is insane. But, okay, 13% increase during my time. Would you blame Jackie Lacey for the 50% increase in homelessness in L.A. County during her time? It's one of the things that, you know, you have, often you have the critics and very driven by police unions because the other people that are very uncomfortable is because we started investigating the San Francisco Police Department because mm-hmm. they deserve to be investigated for all the racist practices. But not something, not something that makes you popular in City Hall. Oh, yeah, it didn't. And, and, and you know, and sometimes, you know, being an elected prosecutor, it's not about popularity. I mean, look, here we, we've had corruption in L.A. City Hall, and, and the feds has to step in without any local mm-hmm. help. I mean, in San Francisco, the feds are doing the prosecutions, but it started with work that I, I was a partner to. Here, the feds have to do it all alone. 
So much of this race has been focused on the type of criminal justice reform policies that we're talking about here. From a DA's perspective, there is a marginalized membership of society that is not serviced by our security apparatus, right? And right. even if you know we we want even if we want to argue that they are, and it's a matter of perspective, it's still their perspective that they aren't. And I know that keeping people safe is the key here. And you've spoken a lot towards, you know, that that segment of the population that is, you know, historically marginalized, say that, you know, you are elected. Um, I believe this podcast will come out the day of the election. So, you know, one week from now, what are the sort of things that you'll immediately start getting after? What are the types of ways that you do this job that are different from, say, you know, your your predecessor or other DAs in the country? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the things, and, and, you know, there are other DAs that are doing the same kind of work that I'm doing. First of all, is to recognize that you give people that commit low-level offenses high-level consequences, meaning felony consequences. What you do is you almost immediately guarantee that they're going to be jobless, and then they're going to be houseless, and then they're going to be out on the streets, and then, you know, other, other things happen. So the first thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that whatever interventions that you're making, that you're not creating greater harm, right? I, I often say that it would be wonderful if, if lawyers took the Hippocratic Oath. You know, doctors, if you become a medical doctor, one of the parts of your oath is do no harm, right? You know, meaning whatever intervention you're going to do, don't make it worse than when you touch that patient. But in, in the criminal justice system, we do harm all day long, and we do it without any regards, right? So the first thing is you need to understand what is it that you're doing and what is the down, downstream consequence of that, right? And that requires that you that you become a student of the trade, that you accept that there is there are scientific norms that tells you, actually, if you do A, B is going to occur, which a doctor will always, a medical doctor will always try to bring into consideration, but, you know, lawyers and certainly prosecutors we're never thinking, okay, what happens if I take this 14-year-old and I send him to prison with adults for a, a, an offense that I could intervene without that? What would be the consequence? Nobody sits down and thinks, okay, that means that this person is going to get a felony conviction. That means they're going to be there with adults. They're going to be victimized in prison, number one. They're going to become, the, the, you foreclose all other opportunities so that they'll actually, they'll get out of prison. Because even if you give them 20 years, if you go in at 14, 15, you're going to get out on your mid-30s. You're going to be meaner than hell. You're going to be angry. And you're going to be with no many, not many other options other than perhaps continue to commit crimes or not continue, start committing crimes in order to survive because you can get housing, you can get employment, right? So the first thing that you need to do is understand that your interventions have consequences beyond the here and now, and that you have to figure out what is the right intervention. The second thing is that you need to start addressing the root causes of crime. So when you have, for instance, if you have an epidemic and car breaking, like we did in San Francisco, and finally we had an issue for police, we started doing, in my office, uh, I created a crime strategies unit, and we used data to really understand who were the more prolific players and what was the motivation? Where were the stolen, who was the stolen property traveling? And once we had an issue for police, we were able to go after this theft rings and immediately had a, almost a 20% decrease in car breaking. So it's understanding the drivers of crime and then applying the right intervention, right? Organized crime, you know, we have the tools for that, right? Mental health is a different tool. Substance abuse is a different tool, right? It's just really doing the heavy lifting as opposed to just sitting there passively 
and taking whatever the police bring through your front door and then trying to get the most punishment that you can without understanding whether that punishment is going to actually be a good thing for the community or actually what you're doing is you're creating collateral damage that we will be paying for for years to come. It's also understanding the economic, not only the social cost, but the economic cost of your actions. You know, people often don't think about this. You know, they say, well, the NDA's budget in L.A., $500 million, we're a big county. But what they don't understand is that the 100,000 plus people that the DA prosecutes every year, which more than 50 percent, do not need to be prosecuted the way they were. It's costing us billions of dollars that you amortize over the next 10, 15, 20 years. You send somebody to prison for 5, 10, 15 years. And if you would have been able to have the same result with less, you go from the point that you went overboard and you amortize that and you look at the financial costs of that and pretty soon you're, you're looking at billions of dollars on liability, not only to the current budgets, but future budgets. And that money's coming away from education, from fixing your potholes, from your parks, you know, all mm-hmm. that stuff has a cost, right? And so the point that I tried to make is that, you know, if I were to be elected DA, we will achieve greater level of security. We will have more inclusivity. We would reduce the racial impact or the disproportionality of race in the system. But at the same time, that will increase safety for everyone. Mm-hmm. And it will provide avenues for us to be able to reinvest in other things that on the long run create greater security. Look, one of the biggest predictors that you will become a productive taxpayer and that be involved in the criminal justice system is having a college degree. But we built 22 prisons and one, co- one public university in 30 mm-hmm. years. Wouldn't it be nice if we did it the other way around? We built 22 public universities and make a college education and trade education more available to everyone. So that's the kind of conversations that we need to start having. And where does the DA fit into that? Well, the DA fits into that by being thoughtful the way, the way he or she uses that discretion so that we don't create greater opportunities for people to continue to commit crimes because they don't have anywhere else to go and then provide the avenues for other players, other stakeholders, other actors in the system to be able to then have the funding necessary to do their work, which is going to make us a safer community. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's all a shared sandbox. And we often forget that, especially if you live in like a nicer part of LA that has, you know, a a lower police presence and a lower crime rate versus, you know, a more dangerous part of LA. I just think that until it touches your family, it's very difficult to, you know, understand that there's human beings on the other side of all of these things. So, I mean, I'm just a huge advocate for what you stand for. Ultimately, I just am, am hopeful that, you know, you, one, when, and uh, two, you know, continue to set an example for how, you know, district attorneys can use their considerate power both to hold corporate bad actors and traditionally like white collar criminals that don't see punishment too often accountable. I hope, you know, that, and I'm curious if that is something that's part of your agenda or platform or your thoughts on that. But obviously, like it's, you know, it's gone, it's, it, the time is now, it's 2020. There hasn't been, you know, it seems like a time where the ideas that you've been, you know, one of the trailblazers for have been more ripe ever, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Jeff, I'm actually glad that you also talk about the, you know, the, 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 the corporate criminality, right? Because uh, unfortunately, LA County, again, is, is kind of a poster uh, case for industrial polluters. Let's just take that as one example. You know, the fossil fuel industries has been damaging the environment in L.A. for generations. But what we see often is we see uncapped or improperly capped uh, abandoned oil wells that are generally in communities that are less affluent. And the impact that that has in the, not only the environment, but we see, you know, one generation after another develop upper respiratory diseases that, that can be clearly be traced to the quality of the air or they're having unusual forms of cancer. So you have cancer clusters in some communities where increasingly scientists and researchers can say this is directly attributed to this environmental crimes. And yet we see a, a district attorney who could actually take action in some of the stuff, but has been completely absent 
And you see like in North County where we had the major explosion, the gas explosions in, and the adjudication of that with South, Southern California Gas Company without really looking deeply into the criminality that went on and actually foreclosing the capacity for many homeowners to get the redress by the way that the, the, the settlement was structured. This is the kind of, you know, this kind of stuff that, you know, the district attorney can play a major role on environmental justice or illegal dumping or, you know, frankly, consumer-related theft that goes on that is not attended to by the district attorney's office. And then you have, of course, you know, corruption in City Hall. And you see completely a complete uh, abandonment, if you will, of their responsibility to, to play a role and how to address that. The district attorney plays so many roles beyond the traditional, what most people see maybe on, on television, you know, uh, the kind of the, the Perry Mason, you know, white guy in a blue suit with a white shirt, uh, you know, bringing, you know, justice to the victim. And they forget that actually prosecutor plays a, a role in all these other places. And even when it comes to the victims of crime, how we victimize so many people in this community by often either not prosecuting their cases or refusing to take their case if they mm. somehow have perceived to be involving other other activities or being forced to if they refuse to be a witness immediately, never mind that they have been traumatized and that we have a role in, in dealing with that, but because they may not be able to be fully cooperative because maybe the neighborhood that they live in, that could be a death sentence and actually sometimes jailing witnesses or victims uh, to force them to cooperate with the prosecution without any regards for the harm that we're doing, which again speaks to the whole concept of doing no harm. Basically what happens is, you know, we have a system here that is so so focused on punishment that has completely lost sight of getting good results for our community. Well, there's this uh, example of the CIA in Pakistan posing as doctors who were going village to village to do the polio vaccinations. I don't know mm-hmm. if I don't know if you're aware of this story, but no, polio no. polio is on the ropes. It's like one of the next diseases to be fully eradicated from the whole planet. In fact, right. coronavirus has had a huge, you know, negative impact on that. It was like on okay. the last last phases. But that's by literally in India, they vaccinated a billion people. They did a billion, they did a hundred million house calls. It's just this unbelievable effort that's gone into you know ridding the planet from one of these you know deadly killers by posing. As doctors, it created a huge backlash that we still haven't recovered from because all it takes is one person to share that rumor. And even if only like a half dozen people experienced it, it's so salacious that, you know, it it spreads like wildfire. And so when you describe these scenarios where, you know, a victim is turned into a defendant or you find the bravery to take a case to the DA or to the police and then it doesn't get prosecuted, it emboldens bad behavior in such a huge way because, you know, it's going to have a multiplier effect on people not feeling like these systems are there to protect them. It, 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 in fact, enforces the exact opposite, which emboldens these bad actors into thinking that they can take advantage of people. Yeah. You know, as a citizen, a few things that I will say, we certainly ban the box with any of our companies that we work with. And that's a practice of just not having a checkbox as to whether or not someone 
is or was a felon. The yep. idea being that, you know, they serve their debt to society and should be able to move on with their lives. And then I'm just curious, what are the other things, of course, you're going to say, you know, vote for you, but like as private citizens, as we, you know, want to get involved more in, you know, criminal justice reform, what do you recommend? What are resources that we can use to educate ourselves and who can we support or how can we show up? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly, Jeff, you, you brought up a really good example of, you know, smart business practices, right? The ban in the box, right? Which some people fought it like crazy and still you know, some communities. But when you insist on people telling you whether criminal history was before in order to get sometimes pretty non-consequential employment, other than the fact that I mean, consequential to the person that will get a paycheck, but not anything, you're not talking about national security or or risking anything else, what you do is you foreclose the ability for those people to have pay taxes, have a good job, get housing, you know, all the good things that then actually create a better environment for all of us. So, you know, just creating or pushing for good public policies that impact all of us in the long run are important. But that, you know, how do how people can get involved? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, we have an election up in six days uh, on a wake up. And if you haven't voted yet, you really need to do so. And, and you know, there, this is one of those elections that I, I would say that, you know, that there are existential issues on the ballot, right? All the way from the presidential to certainly if you're an L.A. County resident to how, how the criminal justice system behaves. If you have come to the conclusion that we need to do something about systemic racism, that we need to in mass incarceration, that we need to invest more in education and public health and all that stuff, then this DA's race will be very important to you. So voting and telling others would be very important. But then past the election, it's really to the extent that you can. And listen, I get that we are all busy and sometimes there is no bandwidth, but to the extent that you can, I would say at minimum, continue to to stay informed. You know, go look for for the information out there, you know, nothing against Facebook or Twitter or, or Instagram, but don't don't use that as a as your as your unique uh, your only source of you know information. You know, do a little bit of the heavy lifting beyond the quick sound bites that you see in social media. Maybe use that as a platform to say, okay, let me look into this. But you know, go read another you know read a, a newspaper, read a a reputable magazine or or look at another website that has a fuller treatment of some of these issues and hopefully not one that has a a absolutely a political lens but one that at least provides some level of balance in their coverage because that is what we need you know a democracy depends on having informed voters and informed participants and unfortunately what we often see uh, because I know the issues are complicated, and I know that we generally don't have time, but we see people sometimes are they not voting, which is a, it's a really bad thing because then you're giving your your uh, your vote somebody else. Basically, their vote will count more than it should because you're giving proportionally your your side of the pie to somebody else, or voting and being very poorly informed which also is, is not necessarily conducive to good public policy and good government. So I would say on the low end, you know, just be an informed voter. On the higher end, if you can, you know, start maybe engaging in organizations that reflect your beliefs. Sometimes it could be as simple as just being a subscriber to, to a publication that you get once uh, periodically to more in-depth, uh, you know, participation in other things. Well, George, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're back to back and running at a million miles an hour 
getting ready for this election here in one yeah. week. And uh, thank you, thank you again for listening. We're you know all you know conspiring together to build the world that we want to see. And, you know, I think that if there's any lesson from 2020, it's that, you know, like we all have the capacity to be a part of the difference making in building the world that we want for ourselves and for others. And, uh, you know, a huge measure of that is how those who have it worse than us in our societies are treated and what opportunities of forgiveness we provide those that, you know, are in sort of these worst situations. I think that, you know, starting at something that is such a foundational component of our society and has such a outsized impact on so many millions of families um, is a really important place to start. So thank you. Thank you for your, for your lifetime of public service, George, and, you know, best of luck in this election. Jeff, thank you so much for the opportunity and your friendship and look forward to uh, maybe doing another podcast if you decide to come back at it again. All right, man. Well, thanks again. <laughs> Take care, brother. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.